Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. My guest today, Ryan Benson, chartered and forensic accountant, chartered business valuator and fraud examiner. Sure, his qualifications and experience hit the spot, so to speak, when it comes to tackling our topic, and that is the intersection of family law and forensic accounting. But our dialogue was much more than that. In it, we tried to humanize what might otherwise be a rather dry topic. And Ryan does that with what I consider an indispensable ingredient to life. Humor. Ryan has a wide variety of experience, including as an expert witness before family court and not just in family law. And I encourage you to learn more about him and his services through his website, bensonindustries.com. As usual, I will include the website URL in the show notes. As you will hear, forensic accounting does have an important role in many family law cases. Ryan explains where and how. Hear his answer when I ask him if he wears a lab coat, like many of the guys and gals on CSI. Enjoy. Well, hello, Ryan, and thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. In my introduction to today's show, Ryan, I told my listeners a little bit about you. Someone I thought would be an ideal guest for our topic today. To personalize our discussion further and to importantly reinforce the idea that we're talking to one another as humans first and professionals second, give us some insight, please, as to how you selected accounting, chartered business valuation, fraud investigation, and importantly for our chat today, forensic accounting as your career path. And to ask you a leading question to begin with, have you wanted to be a chartered accountant since you were five? (laughs) 
I'm not sure if five is the number, but I grew up, uh, my dad was a doctor and he always talked about his accountant, Tony, in, in very loving terms. So as, as fathers and, and son relationships goes, I think maybe I selected accounting because I wanted maybe some of that uh, respect, so to speak, from my father and my career progression. But I did go off track for a little bit. And during my uh, early teens, I wanted to be a musician. So I got into guitar and songwriting and I actually went to Nashville at one point and got to write some music in a, in a seminar with Blake Shelton, who was coming up at the time and I was quite young. But what ended up happening, I think I was maybe 15 at the time and I got home and I was really excited about this. But then I noticed my hair starting to fall out. So naturally, music was no longer in the cards for me. And I was somewhere between accounting and law. And uh, here I am. I'm, I'm in that mix of forensic accounting and law and all of the excitement that comes along with it. I, I had no, no idea you were going to tell that story. But hang on a sec. Gwen Stefani is with Blake Shelton. Have I got the right people here? Or do you even know that? Yeah, I think he's married to Gwen Stefani now. Yeah, That's right. And number two, surely there are uh, country music singers. In fact, I can think of one who wears his hat all the time. But what, what? Why why would you think this is a problem? But anyway, uh, well, thank you for sharing that. Popular at the time, so <laughs> <laughs> we make do with what we're given here. Well, you weren't exactly thinking of a country music career when Noah was launching his arc. You're 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 a young man, but thank you for sharing those personal items uh, from your life. Let's talk about forensic accounting, and let's start with the most basic building blocks for our exploration today. And that is the intersection of family law and forensic accounting. Most people have some familiarity with the word forensic from TV shows like CSI, for example, people wearing lab coats, using special lamps to make surfaces glow in the dark, that kind of thing. They know it has something to do with investigating at some deeper level, perhaps some sleuthing. Perhaps they think of it as using specialized methods, something more than just standard investigative techniques to uncover the truth. They might know forensics are closely connected with science, using scientific methods and techniques to investigate both crime and possible crime. What is forensic accounting, Ryan? And do you wear a lab coat? <laughs> uh, no, uh, that's a new one. We don't have lab coats or special glow-in-the-dark lamps, no. But pocket protectors and those green lampshades that you see uh, in those Norman Rockwell-type paintings, those are standard issues. So the second you declare yourself a forensic accountant, that pops up in an Amazon box in your front door. Actually, funnily, you know what the new one in that sense that I keep getting now is? What happens is, like anyone, when you're meeting somebody, right, the first time, 
or an acquaintance or kind of a, a close friend, inevitably they'll ask you, what do you do? Right. What do you do for a living? So for you, it's family lawyer, right? So, right. I mean, I'm sure that they have some kind of joke or something that they throw behind that when they hear family. Correct. Lawyer, like, oh, you know, I know what to do now when my wife does blah, blah, blah or something. That's right. <laughs> So now, uh, when when I first started, uh, before I started my practice, I'd just say accountant. And people, you know, you'd see the life drain out of their eyes when you say accountant. They start looking for a way to, to get out of this conversation as quickly as they can. But now I say forensic accountant. And people go, ooh, oh, okay, interesting. But they don't ask what that is. But maybe it's a month or a few months down the road, they'll, they'll meet up with me again and say, hey, Ryan. Uh, and they'll and they'll say this quietly. They'll kind of pull me aside. So I was thinking about you the other day, and I was watching a movie, and I start thinking, "Uh oh, here we go." Hey, did you ever see the movie The Accountant? Uh, no. Oh yeah, you know it came out a few years ago, and it was uh, the one with Ben Affleck where he's a forensic accountant and he's hiding money for the mob and he's chasing people around with guns and uh, running away from hitmen. Is that is that what you do? <laughs> yes, of course. That's exactly what I do. <laughs> but, uh, so, no. What I do, in, in all seriousness, is I'm preparing expert reports and accounting reports for use in a court or in mediation or in a collaborative type setting, uh, like an alternative dispute resolution. And in the context of family law, specifically, what I'm looking at is the calculation of income for support and potentially what a business's value might be. Sometimes we'll see tax type contingency issues like in an RSP or a pension plan. And some files specifically really require more depth in the forensic investigation element searching for cash transactions, searching for underreported income, hidden assets, aggressive tax planning, etc. And my job in compiling all of this information and explaining it is to provide an independent and unbiased report and evidence for a judge, mediator, client, and counsel. So you do a little bit more than average digging. Isn't that how we would describe it, that your qualifications give you skills, your training give you skills to uncover things a little more deeply than an average accountant would? Is that a fair thing to say? You have special training to do that kind of investigation? Definitely. There is training there. And your average accountant, when they're looking at a tax return or preparing financial statements, Doing this kind of forensic analysis into, say, income for support isn't really in the scope of what they're trying to accomplish. They just want to get the tax return done. So they're not looking for personal expenses to the same degree. And when it comes to cash, it's one of those things that they really don't want to know about. So often they don't know, or at least they say that. Uh, We have a cash component built into our hypothetical that is coming up, and I'm looking forward to talking about that with you. When clients first retain me, quite often they suggest we will need a forensic accountant to be involved in their case. 
they have a gut feeling that some investigation will be required related to income, as you said, for example, likely because they know of something which, if not looked into further, if not probed and exposed, would lead to an unfair consideration of rights and obligations in their case, and maybe even an unjust result. Here are some macro big picture examples, and you've touched on some of these already. Cash income generated by an individual or a business, hidden bank accounts. Am I on track so far with these examples? And you've already, as I said, mentioned some of these. Do you have any other ones to add? I do. And and cash income and hidden assets are, are really always or almost always a primary concern in many of these cases. But other common examples are whether there's personal expenses being written off in the business, allegations of tax evasion or some sort of tax fraud, personal expenses such as uh, watches and jewelry exceeding declared income. Sometimes you'll see offshore accounts or hidden bank accounts in the Caribbean. And occasionally in, in more sophisticated cases, what I tend to see is something called profit stripping which, uh, no, I'm not talking about Candy, who works at the Brass Taps. This is really hiring a family member or someone who you might know to work in the business or provide some sort of subcontracting fee to the business to pull the profits out. So they're billing the spouse in question's business and then holding on to the cash for them for when everything clears out. So we tend to see that. And what happens is, in many of these divorce cases, is that trust in the relationship is broken down somewhere along the line. And typically, uh, often this actually isn't in the financial element of things, although sometimes it is. But usually it's something to do with uh, you know, infidelity or, or substance abuse or something like that. And that breach of trust has a major cascading effect into everything else. So that trust has been broken in one area, and now what else has been lied about? And that's when these financial issues start cropping up. So those annual trips to the Cayman Islands or Panama suddenly become relevant to the conversation. And I, I often liken this to uh, Schrodinger's cat. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that analogy. Yeah. So for the listeners who don't know, it's essentially a, an old hypothetical question, which is there's a, there's a cat in a box and there's poison in the box that the cat may or may not have been exposed to. And is the cat dead or alive? And my job in this case is to open the box and tell you what's there. So you have some certainty and that usually tends to diffuse a little bit of that distrust in, in these proceedings. It's a great way of explaining it. Very accessible, very, uh, uh, as I said, accessible, easy to understand. And I think it will be helpful to uh, my listeners. So thank you for that. Uh, Let's set up a hypothetical, Ryan, and those uh, of you who hear this podcast on a regular basis know that I love hypotheticals. 
so we can apply the concepts we're discussing to some scenarios. So our uh, hypothetical involves Martha and Mimi. They separate after 12 years of marriage and several years of cohabitation before that. They have two children. They own a house together, which is in Martha's name. It is mortgage-free, worth about $1.5 million. In the marriage, Mimi looked after the finances and Martha looked after the kids and the household. For the last 10 years, Mimi and Martha have been running a flower shop together, quite successful, with a solid customer base, not only walk-in retail, but also weddings, funerals, standing orders with two hotels to supply all their flowers. The business is called Say It With The Rose. And when I told my husband about this hypothetical, he said, couldn't you come up with a cheesier name? But... (laughs) Moving on to our, uh, with our hypothetical, the business is incorporated and Mimi is the sole shareholder. So using plain language, Mimi is the legal owner of the business. And to be more precise, the business is a separate legal entity as a corporation, but all the shares are owned by Mimi. So she's essentially the owner. Here are some additional facts. Martha has been working in the business from the very beginning. Essentially, she has been responsible for running the physical shop, ordering all the flowers from suppliers, all stock issues. While Mimi was responsible for marketing and taking all orders, Martha processed all payments Both Mimi and Martha receive a salary from the business. In other words, they each got a monthly paycheck. If the business did well in a given year, Mimi was paid a dividend. The expectation was that all money from, say it with the rose, any income earned in whatever form would be used for the family. And yes, the business paid for all manner of expenses for both Martha and Mimi their cars, their cell phones, travel to florist conventions held in sunny, tropical locations. Martha wants to keep the business. Neither believes they can continue to work with the other. There is a fair bit of cash in the business, meaning income which was not reported for tax purposes. Both Martha and Mimi know that, though Mimi now denies it. She says if there was cash, she did not know about it because she left the processing of all orders, including payments to Martha. If any part of the earnings was not reported to CRA, that was Martha's fault. Martha says, of course, Mimi knew about the cash. She's the one who was able to negotiate with new customers that they would pay in cash. She took the orders. I simply processed them. And I gave the cash to Martha, who then put it in the safe in our home. Let's include an additional fact. The kids will live with Martha primarily. In other words, Mimi will pay child support to Martha. So, Ryan what do you see in this hypothetical as a forensic accountant? And Martha is our client. 
yours and mine. Okay. Well, there's a lot here to dig into. Firstly, there's this question of cash income. There's obviously some personal expenses being run through the business. And there's a big question mark regarding the the, the business valuation and whether or not we should proceed with that as well. If Martha is the person who wants to effectively run the business post-divorce. But to me... I think the biggest issue is going to be around this cash income. And and we can talk about that a little bit later on. And the personal expenses, I mean, there's some automobile, travel, cell phones. There may be some other expenses there as well, such as computers or or some other write-offs that they may be taking. And there could be some tax liability here, a, a contingent tax liability if CRA got whiff of these cash sales, so to speak. And the the final question is what amount of the pre-tax profit of the corporation should be attributed to Mimi because it's her business. So does the business need the cash flow for operations or for expansion, or should this all be attributed to, to her for the income for support? Let's double click on the cash income. Martha insists there was a fair bit of it and that it will continue. Mimi denies it. How would you go about investigating this issue with the goal of demonstrating there was undisclosed income and possibly how much of it? That's a great question. And you've probably run into this a lot in your practice too. I do. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be the common the common denominator with all of us. But the biggest issue with cash is, as anyone listening here might know, is going to be tracing it because it's hard to find. And often with cash, even with the best forensics, the waters are still a little bit murky on these issues. So you need to rely on a few different types of analyses in order to develop some substantial amount of evidence that it's there and how much is there. So, so what I mean by this is even in a, in a base situation where Martha has a photograph of the safe full of cash, what's to say that this cash wasn't declared as income because you don't know where it's come from. So, The first and foremost way to look at this is looking at comparatively sized florists. And what I'm looking at is what level of expenses are they incurring, say for roses and hydrangea, whatever, as a percentage of revenue? And how does that look compared to this business? People and and business owners who run cash sales often have this kind of pernicious habit where they don't declare any cash sales, but, and it's a big but, they're declaring every single expense in the business. So they want the maximum benefit with no associated cost. So what you'll find here is that when I'm comparing these expenses and looking at the revenue of the company is that the expenses of the floor, the floral arrangements and the roses and the different types of flowers as a percentage of total revenue is going to be far higher than comparatively sized businesses, which points to me that we've got some cash sales here. 
But the question is going to be how much. Secondarily, we can start to look at a lifestyle analysis. So here I'm asking the question of what are Mimi and Martha's personal expenses and how does this compare to declared income? And when you see an obvious and large disconnect, there's some pretty substantial evidence of a problem that needs to be investigated. And I, I actually had a case a few years ago of this where there was some, some cash income. And when I perform this lifestyle analysis, what you're doing is that you're adding up all these different personal expenses and saying, what level of income would you need to earn to pay for them? And in this case, if I recall correctly, it was, I think, $400,000 a year in personal expenses. So a lot. Um, I think about $250,000 were on Visa, which is uh, a lot. <laughs> and this, this person, the business owner, was declaring about $75,000 in income. So obviously, we had a big problem there, and it ended up resolving quite well. Sometimes with cash, you'll see a conversion type issue. And what that means with cash conversion is the owner doesn't want to deposit the cash into a bank account because it's now traceable. So suddenly this cash pops up in kind of different and other areas. And often it's typically in high dollar value, hard assets that we'll hear about, such as Rolexes, such as gold bars hidden in candles in the basement and jewelry and boats and art and antiquities, anything that can really be bought and kind of enjoyed to some extent, but it holds a certain liquidation value if that person needs the cash. And like I said earlier, it's not just one type of analysis here. We want to pull together that whole story to say, does, does Mimi have a Rolex? Does Mimi and Martha, do they spend way more than the business is earning? What is the percentage of expenses versus revenue? And that helps to paint a picture for a judge or a mediator to say, yeah, there's, there's serious cash income here. And we think it's about X or Y or in that range. And I was hinting at a lifestyle analysis where in our hypothetical I said that they live in a $1.5 million home, which is mortgage-free, because the question uh, Martha and her team will be, may be asking and probably will be asking is, based on the reported income of this family unit and the business, can this couple, could they have afforded to buy a home this size and pay down the mortgage? And so, you know, as you suggested, are there luxury items around them? Are they driving cars without financing? I think that's that's the kind of investigation you were you were talking about. Uh, am I right about that? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, a big house or a small house with a Lamborghini in the driveway is always a red flag. <laughs> That's right. And what about these expenses the business paid for Mimi and Martha? Let's talk about that a little bit more. And if Mimi is able to keep the business, these will continue for her, the car, the phone, and so on. Is this relevant to the uh, investigation you would be doing on behalf of Martha? 
Absolutely. And one of the things that you run into, there are these guidelines that are given for calculating income for support. And essentially what these guidelines give you is what it looks for a standard T4 style employee in terms of how to calculate the support. And what they then try to do is normalize it for self-employed business owners, which means personal expenses being run through the business. These sorts of things effectively get added back into income to show what their true earning capacity would be if they were just a standard employee. So with these personal, with the personal expenses like a car, there's often a blend between business and personal that happens with any business owner. And the question then is what amount of the expense being declared is personal and what amount is business? So in a case like this, I'd be looking at, or at least trying to obtain uh, mileage logs, which you're supposed to keep and CRA will ask you for them if you're ever audited for tax purposes. And that helps to derive a certain component that would be personal versus business. Same would go for cell phones, although that's kind of a small dollar value item. So I'm not sure if in most cases, unless it were the children's phones were being added on and there were really high levels of expenses being incurred, I may not dive into something like cell phones being paid because there is kind of a logical reason that you would have one for business purposes too. So you're mentioning personal versus business, Ryan. I think that's a great segue to the next area I wanted us to tackle. And that is those trips to florist conventions. For example, in 2018, Mimi and Martha traveled to Hawaii with the kids. They were there for 10 days. Mimi spent two days at the actual convention, but the business paid for the entire trip, flight, hotel, all of it. What about that, Ryan, from a forensic accounting perspective? That's a great question. And the first thing that comes to mind to me is that this is one of those blended expenses. So you see that they've traveled to a lovely place. And uh, if there's any forensic accounting conventions in Hawaii, I'd like to go, by the mm -hmm. way. But they were there for two days for the convention and they took the kids and they had a great time. But they were there for 10 days total, which is going to be personal. So, and, and I see this all the time, by the way, often it happens with dentists who uh, for some reason have their conference every year at Walt Disney World. And it's a similar type situation where they go away, but they tack on some personal time to it and they'll write the whole thing off for tax purposes. This is a pretty easy one to figure out though, because the question is, when were they there? What dates were the convention held? And how much did it cost? So how much was the accommodation, the meals, entertainment, and play type expenses? What component of this is paying for the kids, which wouldn't be tax deductible? So if they took uh, surfing lessons or scuba diving or something like that, which, I mean, I take it there's a lot of sharks in Hawaii, so maybe not advisable to send your kids that way. Those would be personal. But in, in a situation like this, it's a pretty reasonable assumption without going into too much detail that they were there for the convention for two days. 
they were there for 10 days total. That's about 20% of the time spent on business. So a rough approximation without diving into it would be 80% of this trip is personal and 20% of this business or part of this trip rather is business. You're right. Both you and I run into these situations fairly frequently. So let's carry on with our hypothetical. In one of our early meetings with Martha, she tells us that she thinks Mimi has at least one secret bank account. She Uh has seen correspondence addressed to Mimi, both at the home address and at the business, from financial institutions she has never heard Martha mention. Once, Mimi opened one such envelope in front of Martha and left the statement on the kitchen table for a moment uh, when her phone rang. So Martha quickly took a photo with her phone, but it turned out blurred. It does appear to be a savings account at one of the major banks. What do you think about this piece of information, Ryan? I think big, bold red flags here. Because now we're looking at a little bit more of a sophisticated hiding assets scheme. So the first question that comes to mind for me is where is this bank located? And if it's in Canada, it's going to be a lot easier due to the financial reporting standards to find the bank and the bank account and ideally the bank statements to see where the assets are and sort of the stream of cash pouring into it over time. If it's offshore, though, we have bigger and far worse uh, implications because it's going to be a lot harder to get that type of information, especially on a blurry photo, which may not really be something that can be presented as, as evidence necessarily. So the one thing I will say, especially if it's offshore, it's hard to move cash across borders. So it's likely that you're going to see some sort of expense in the business that is, uh, frankly, a bullshit expense. And that's the way that that, uh, Mimi is peeling money out of the business. So you might see a management consulting fee for a florist shop, which makes no sense. And they're charging $50,000 a year for this. And that money's disappearing to management consultants of Cayman Islands Limited, which is essentially a made-up shell company for this bank account. So you might see something like that if it's offshore. Canada would be uh, perhaps easier to find, though, just because of these financial reporting standards and being able to pull them. And of course, if it's offshore, you forgot to mention, uh, you and I might have to go there. We may actually have to fly to the offshore destination, you know, just to check it out and make sure it's That's know, right. do some sleuthing on the spot. Don't you agree? I think that is at least a two-week to three-week uh, endeavor, ideally in February or March, and uh, we can really get to the bottom of it, definitely. <laughs> uh, we are definitely on the same track about this. Do you have any of those cases now? (laughs) I I don't right now, but I have had some interesting cases where I've had to leave Canada and uh, go to other places. Let's leave it at that. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk for a moment about how you would communicate your findings and to whom. Uh, 
So as part of your engagement for Martha, uh, you would report to her and to me from time to time about the status of your investigation. And then we might have a meeting when you are done uh, so you can tell us what you found, correct? That's right. Absolutely. And what if Mimi and Martha are before family court? There is a court case and because they cannot resolve several important issues through negotiation, these will have to go to trial. And this includes the issue of Mimi's income and equalization, which by way of reminder to the listeners, it's Ontario's formula for dealing with their assets and debts at separation. Uh, So Martha needs the court to be aware of your findings. She wants to rely on them in her presentation of the issues before the court. Let us know, please, how would your findings make their way before the court? Yeah, and and that's a great question because people often don't know the process who are going through it. So it's good to be clear here. At the end of all of this forensic investigation and these calculations, the end product is going to be a report on income for support and a report potentially on the business valuation at the time of separation. And I do make a point, and I'm glad that you brought this up actually, of pulling in counsel and the client throughout the process so they understand what am I doing, what information, what additional information do I need? why am I doing it? And what potential issues am I seeing and why? Finally, when the report's done, I send it to counsel, I send it to the client, and we put some time into ensuring that they're understandable uh, to a layperson. And inevitably, there are some questions which may come up. And the idea here is that counsel, the client, and a judge or a mediator should be able to understand this information insofar as they can make an informed and prudent decision going forward. And I always say that I want the client to come out of this experience feeling like they're a CPA. I want them to have that level of knowledge over what's going on. So from there, if there are two forensics or evaluators involved, we may have a meeting to kind of flesh out some of the issues that are up for debate and try to come to some reasonable resolution of an in-between ground, so to speak. And that will help to update the calculations and and narrow the range of topics which might be covered. And if this heads heads to trial, I'm going to be asked to give evidence to the judge, which means we're going to present them. I'll be cross-examined by the other spouse's lawyer, which is always fun. And the judge will take this back and eventually come to a decision on what the income for support is and what the business value is. And I should point that judges especially are always looking out for a few things. They want to emphasize the importance of an independent and unbiased report and expertise. If they start getting a whiff of this Ben Affleck style hired gun situation, this really does take away from the credibility of the numbers and the result. Similarly, they want to make sure that this evidence is substantiated and a sufficient amount of work and time was spent arriving at the figures. And this is why I at least 
look at the general ledgers and start asking questions about the business because this adds credibility and value to the findings uh, beyond just looking at the tax returns or the financial statements and taking a shot in the dark. That's a terrific point you raised, and I'm glad you did. And that's the hired gun perception. Because the public is often unaware that experts before the court have a duty of impartiality. And so they're not essentially mouthpieces for their their client's position. They are officers of the court and they have to be unbiased. And the other point you talked about, Ryan, is a potential meeting between the evaluators, a meeting or a dialogue of some form where they're trying to come up perhaps with a compromise position or parts of their respective reports that they are they have a meeting of the minds about and are prepared to jointly recommend to their clients. And just for the listeners, that meeting is called hot tubbing. <laughs> people find that quite funny. And I don't actually know how we came up with that phrase, but those discussions between the evaluators are called hot tubbing. Yes, like a hot tub. So Ryan, this has been terrific. I think you've provided lots of very useful information to the listeners in very accessible terms. And I'm glad you liked the hypothetical. I thought you would enjoy that. Thank you again. And now let's talk about food. Those of you who have uh, heard uh, my interviews before know that at the end of each episode, I talk about food. One of my favorite podcasts out there is Alan Aldous Clear and Vivid. And at the end of his interviews, Alan asks his guests a number of questions related to communication. And this helps the listener get to know the guest a little better. I find that a terrific way to end an interview. So I'm going to ask you three questions about food, Ryan. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. Number one, what is your favorite food or cuisine? That would be prime rib. Absolutely. What about it is special for you? Why Why would you answer the question that way? You know, I, I always loved steaks and meats as a kid. And I have this memory when I was little. So just to set the stage here, I think I was about eight. And it's funny, we were talking about these conferences earlier and uh, personal versus business expenses. So like I, like I mentioned, my, my father was a doctor and we were going to Lake Louise in the Rocky Mountains in Alberta, of course, for our conference. And it was my first time going out west. I'm eight years old and I'm seeing these mountains and it was February. So it's snowy and it's dark and you kind of look out the windows. And we were taking this bus from the Calgary airport to Lake Louise. And I, I just remember this recollection of, of looking at the windows and looking at this kind of grand uh, snow covered mountains and kind of the majesty of, of nature. But fast forward a couple of days, back to food. So we went, to, they had this buffet dinner at the conference and I'm eight. Okay. But I'm a big eight. I'm six foot six now. So, you know, I was maybe, maybe I, I probably looked like I was 10. So we're sitting there and I see prime rib on the, on the buffet table. So I go, uh, this is for me. Wonderful. But AJ, guess how many times I went up? Three? Prime rib. Apparently... 13. (laughs) (laughs) 
I just remember feeling so sick, but uh, did I ever sleep well that night? <laughs> wow. You know, they say if you get pushed off a ski hill when you first go up, you'll never ski again. But apparently these 13 trips to the buffet didn't turn you off prime rib. You still love it. <laughs> I still love it. And uh, my wife makes fun of me for it constantly. Fabulous. And so tell us about a favorite restaurant anywhere in the world. Hmm. It often, maybe, you know, I think it's probably just based on memory, but there's a restaurant. I grew up in Ancaster, Ontario, which is just outside of Hamilton. And we grew up, or I grew up maybe five minutes away from this restaurant called the Ancaster Mill, which is, uh, I don't know if it's fine dining considered necessarily, but at the time it was the 90s. So maybe, maybe a little bit less so, but we, we would go generally, it was reserved for special occasions like Christmas. And they have this amazing Sunday morning buffet, brunch kind of buffet, which from my last story, you can tell, obviously I'm into buffets. So I think that one I miss most because of COVID and it's been shut down, but that would definitely be my favorite. And uh, as a bonus, I, I actually went to school with the uh, kids who have taken over the business. So I know them a little bit as well. So it's uh, it's a really special place for me. I know the place. We celebrated my uncle's 70th birthday there a few years ago. It's got a brook running through it almost. Isn't, isn't that the one? And the buffet is in different locations, so to speak. In other words, the actual restaurant sprawls over on either side of the brook. Isn't that the one? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It was an old uh, mill and they have a bridge that goes over this, yes. this brook and they have prime rib, of course, and a chocolate fountain and a waffle station and all this other kind of fun stuff. And I'm looking forward, my kids are three and two. So I'm actually looking forward to taking them there because our I, one eats food all the time. And uh, I think we'll get our money's worth with him. That's right. If it's anywhere close to dad's 13 trips to the buffet, you will certainly get your money's worth. I highly recommend it too. We had a private room for my uncle's surprise birthday party and it worked out really well. And I am a pescatarian, so I no longer eat prime rib. I do miss it. I'm not going to pretend, but uh, that restaurant also has lots and lots of choice for people who are not meat eaters. So I'm glad you, you recommended a restaurant here in Ontario. That's fabulous. Ryan, I hope you enjoyed this. I certainly did. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. What you told us today and your insights will be very helpful to my listeners. I know it. Thank you very much for having me. I had a great time. Good. Come back. We have lots of other topics to talk about. I will. I will. I'll try to be uh, as interesting or more interesting next time too. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.